0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to International Buzz, brought to you by WordBee. I am your host for today's episode of International Buzz. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'm here with Dion Wiggins, a person who has a tremendous amount of experience in the localization industry, specifically related to machine translation. Dion, how are you today? Hi, I'm very good. Thanks, Matt. Good, good. So right now, you are the CTO of Omnision, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about Omnisian and your background in machine translation?
1: Sure. So originally, Omniscient Technologies was uh, known as Asia Online, and we rebranded a couple of years ago to reflect more of what we'd become over the years and evolved. Um, So we initially created ourselves with the vision of translating lots of open content, such as Wikipedia and other things. That business model didn't quite work out, so we decided to pivot, and we had some wonderful technology, and we pivoted into selling that technology both on site and. And as a service today that's been reincarnated in multiple forms including the big buzz at the moment neural machine translation and we have a hybrid model of that as well which is hybrid and statistical together which addresses many of the challenges and the weaknesses of both platforms as well as a lot of language processing technologies
0: right well let's, so, let's come, things let's... like sentiment analysis okay so let's come back to the technology in a second um, you mentioned that uh, previously your business model with Asia Online, in addition to selling MT engines, was actually to translate open source or open content on the web? And then what were you trying to sell Correct. advertising around it or?
1: Yeah, so that, that was the original model. So uh, we won a project with the Thai government originally, and we uh, translated about 3.4 million pages of Wikipedia from English into Thai. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, that was right about the time where Google decided that it wanted to to purge a lot of content because it was getting a lot of a bad reputation for having lower quality content. And of course, machine translation is not ranked as the highest quality, even if a, a government is sponsoring it and involved. So we had a great project with the Thai government. They launched it. Uh, the prime minister of Thailand at the time launched it on Children's Day as a gift to the children of Thailand. But unfortunately, about three or four months later, Wikipedia in Thai just vanished off the internet. or are our form of it anyway, as uh, Google just decided to completely drop it out of its index. And there was nothing we could do about that. So no visitors, no advertising, no revenue. We had to find a new model. Well, And that's... that model was actually packaging the product.
0: Okay. And so tell me a little bit about your technology right now. You mentioned that you have, what, a statistical machine translation, and you also have a hybrid model with neural. Tell me a little bit about that. So we've been working with our chief scientist, uh,
1: Professor Philip Kuhn, who is the uh, the godfather, if you like, of the Moses Statistical machine translation platform. And we had that up and running very early. And then we have progressively evolved into other technologies. And one of those, of course, is neural. We now have probably what is the fastest neural machine translation system around. We've just managed to get one single GPU last week translating at 50,000 words a minute, which is pretty much unheard
0: of before that. Okay, okay. Uh, so, um, for- I mean, For somebody like me who dabbles in technology and should know more about it because I'm out there representing a company like WordBee, let's back up a little bit. When you say neural translation or neural technology, what does that actually mean? Okay, well, if you
1: think about it, you know, how a human thinks and builds relationships and basically has pathways through in relationships, that's very much how neural machine translation works. So it can understand that king and queen have a relationship. That winning and losing have a relationship and so on. And so it's quite good at actually creating words, even if it didn't have it originally. So let's take a language like German that's full of compounds. And we may not have that compound in our engine, but it's still able to decode that and work out what it was and convert that down into English. And um, one of the key things, much like a human, is it predicts the sentence coming out the other side rather than building lots of options like statistical does. So it predicts from left to right the entire sentence. And as a result, the fluency is much better than statistical machine translation. And it's able to um, just generally be a, a higher quality translation compared to statistical. So when people read it as humans, they feel like it's more human and more natural.
0: Okay, and is it more resource intensive in terms of the hardware requirements or actually in terms of the development that's required?
1: certainly is. So to give you an idea, um, your typical statistical machine translation engine, at least the ones we built, had between 1 and 5 million sentences in them. Our biggest engine had uh, 30 million sentences. Now we're building engines that have anywhere from 50 or somewhere nearing nearly nearly a
0: billion sentences of bilingual data. So the resources to do it properly, just huge. That's amazing. Well, earlier you mentioned, uh, I think that was a performance metric of one, was it one GP or one GM? I'm sorry, I missed that one. It's a GPU, so a graphical
1: processing unit. Ah, So that's one of the big differences with statistical and uh, neural is the amount of processing capacity that is required is very different. So, You can run neural machine translation on a CPU, but it would run at about, I don't know, less than 1% the speed. So you need GPU capacity. So now GPUs are becoming much more cost effective. And to give you a comparative, a year and a half ago, we were training an engine in about four to five weeks. We can now train an engine in less than a day. That's also very impressive. So we've really optimized them. One thing I have to say is um, they are hungry. So one server training a system costs seventy US dollars a day
0: in electricity alone. Wow! Is it so GPUs? Are these the same things that are used by the Bitcoin miners?
1: <laughs> uh, they are same by Bitcoin miners. Um, they're basically high-end
0: gaming's graphics cards. Okay, impressive, impressive. Well, I was in the office the other day, and um, there was a conversation whether or not. There's a future for translation, specifically for translators. And there were a couple of people that were saying that, you know, with the performance improvements in machine translation, that, you know, in five to 10 years, everything can be translated by machines and translators will be out of work. What are your thoughts on that? Is machine translation a, a threat to translators?
1: Yes and no. I mean, we have some language service provider customers who have come to us because Google and others are getting better and are simply losing work. In some areas, machine is good enough. In some areas, machine is the only solution. So, for example, our largest customer by volume right now is a company called LexisNexis, and they're translating patents from English into Japanese, and then they're doing that in several other languages. So the total project is about 500 billion words of content. Now, for a human to do that is just impractical and impossible. We're translating 100 billion words, that, which is every single English language patent that ever existed, from English into Japanese. In about, I think they're taking about eight weeks to do the job. And <laughs> that's, that's just something that's unfathomable for humans. That's crazy. And to put yeah. that in a bit further context, um, I read a number a little while back that Facebook does about 100 billion
0: words a year. So we're doing that in a couple of months for LexisNexis. That's impressive. I guess then they will use that for Japanese language patent searches. So if somebody in Japan wanted to check. That's see, right. Yeah. Okay. That's impressive. So, exactly. So, and then you mentioned sentiment analysis. Is that another area that, uh, sure. that you're, you're working in now?
1: So we've currently got a set of tools in TEST, and this is an interesting evolution for us. So over our 11 years of operation, we've built up a lot of bits and pieces for doing various projects with various organizations. And about a year ago, we decided to consolidate them into a library that is now in early beta test, I would call it, I guess. Um, We're using it internally. It's got about 500 functions, and that ranges from things like sentiment analysis, named entity recognition, domain identification all sorts of things in a wide variety of languages. And then we're applying those into other platforms and tools as well. So recently we've been doing a lot of work in the media space as an example. Mm-hmm. So you might know a company called iFlix and iFlix is a one of the larger competitors against Netflix. So we're processing 22 languages for iFlix translating subtitles. And what that means to them is we're able to, in the workflow, break down a subtitle, join the sentences up that are split across screens, translate it. On the other side, we're able to split it back up across screens automatically based on reading speed for the language and really minimize the amount of editing work that the human has to do. So it's doing a lot more than just translating. It's doing all the processing around it to provide a high quality subtitle on the other side.
0: Yeah, but that's not really sentiment analysis. Can you give an example of sentiment analysis? And then we'll come back to the role of the translator, which I kind of diverged off of. But let's uh, let's focus on sentiment (laughs) analysis for a second. Sure. So...
1: Sentiment analysis, is it happy or angry, basically, in the simplest form? So we have a project with a number of customers that's leveraging sentiment analysis. In addition to named entity recognition, for example, one of our partners in Europe is a company called KeenCorp. And KeenCorp analyzes internal communications between its own staff to determine how happy they are. (laughs) And that's using sentiment. Um, and various other things, but it's also analysing their commitment. So things like if they say, oh, we should do something about that versus I will do something about that. So is the staff committed or not? And understanding that kind of level of sentiment and that determines really how engaged your staff members are with customers, which one of their customers, uh, I believe, has 400,000 staff members. So they really want to understand what the internal sentiment and feelings are with their staff or how committed they are to getting the work done or working with their customers and so on. And this really helps them. So we do that on a large scale. But that's just one of the many, many functions that we have in our what we call LS tools library, which is about 500 functions in total.
0: Okay, so I, I would assume then that they're what they're doing is they're monitoring emails or is it there, Are they monitoring social media posts? Or yep. Okay. So they are blindly without
1: identifying the actual individuals, uh, monitoring internal communications via email, et cetera, and understanding the general sentiment, how much commitment there is, how much goodwill, how much negativity, and so on.
0: Okay, impressive. Now, let's go back to the role of the translator. You mentioned that in in certain domains, the machine translation is the only option. I mean, you gave the example of the LexisNexis work that you're doing. What are Mm -hmm. some areas where translators will still be working in 10 years? Well, I think you've got to look at it at two
1: sides. What is a translator, first of all? What's their role? I think their role will start to evolve. Many of them will become more specialized in reviewing and fine-tuning a machine output than specifically starting from zero. There will still be some domains that are definitely the realm of a pure human translator. So, for example, marketing, perhaps, something like that. But where machines are already excelling, and in many cases at least replacing the first pass human translator in most cases is things like in life science, we're doing a lot of work in e-commerce and many of these other areas, IT of course, You know, where time to market and cost is very important and reducing that cost down. So, you know, being able to reduce the cost, but not necessarily make less money for a language service provider or a translator. So one of the challenges in the past with this model has been the language service providers, not all, but many of them have not treated the translator fairly. So they've just said, right, this is our machine translation rate. Take it or leave it. Whether the machine output is good or bad. So you could have a really good quality engine and you're being paid fairly, but if you're being paid that same rate and the engine's really bad, then you've got to turn around and you're doing a lot more work for a lot less money. So I think there has been a change where things are starting to be adjusted based on real effort and real time and then uh, converted and pushed through that.
0: So I think
1: that makes a big difference.
0: Yeah, in my experience, most translators really have not enjoyed or relished the role of post-editor. And for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, I mean, these people, they take the art of translation very seriously and Mm -hmm. they don't like even oftentimes editing somebody else's translation work. But when it comes to machine translation, because traditionally the output really hasn't been in certain domains that high of quality, right? In some domains, like I've seen machine translation work incredibly well for example with manuals where you know this year's manual is just a slight small iteration from last year's manual all the terminology is the same and you can run an mt run everything through a, a tm anything that's hasn't that's not in the tm then you run it through mt and you get you know very high quality output and then you know and translators they will even say you know translating manuals for example even if they get to do the translation from the beginning isn't as enjoyable as maybe some other areas that maybe takes a little bit more or allows for some more creativity. But you still seem to be focusing more on the applications for MT versus the bright and rosy future for translators. So maybe... um, Well,
1: look at it a slightly different way. Um,
0: I mean, I hear from a lot of
1: translators when they first take, you know, when they first see MT is, oh, a machine can never replace me, I'm creative. But if you're translating, as you said, the 10th version of a automotive manual, You don't want creativity, you want consistency. Exactly. So there's a big difference there. But in terms of where the work's going, there will always be a role for human translators for a very long time to come for one simple reason. Machines don't understand, okay? And that's a really big difference. Now, they're starting to get a better contextual balance with neural, so, you know, that can build those relationships that perhaps statistical did not have, Mm -hmm. but they still don't understand, so unless they can think, they don't understand context. So, for example, if I said to you, I went to the bank, it's very ambiguous. I could have gone to the ATM. I could have swam to the riverbank. I could have banked my plane into a dive or banked my car into a turn. Right? There's numerous things that I could have done. And without context and understanding, you can't translate that accurately. Right. And that's where a machine... That's where a machine really breaks down. But the way that's addressed in the near term, at least, is by creating a custom engine that is customized to that context. So, for example, if you do a banking and finance engine, then you know that it's going to typically be in the banking and finance context. Let's take the word virus, for example. I caught a virus. Okay, If you have a life sciences engine, you know what that is. And if you have an IT engine, you know what that is. And that's the difference. So sense. while the machine may not be understanding, you're giving it the level of context it needs to give the impression of understanding and therefore delivering a more in-context and higher-quality translation.
0: So context and the, I guess, which equates to increased volumes of content that are highly targeted would lead to improved quality outputs, I suppose. Does that make sense? That's right. Okay. Yes, So exactly. So let me ask you right. this.
1: So if you mix everything into a big bucket, basically yeah. you get a big dirty gray bucket, right? Yeah. So I'll give you one more example. We did an engine recently, a neural engine, and that neural engine just had 1,000 segments of English-Japanese. And we were able to beat Google and scores by about 20 blue points. Similarly, we had a German engine that was focused on patents, and Google has all the patents in the world, as mm-hmm. do we. So there's about twelve million segments in there that are patent related. And we were a good ten blue points ahead of Google for one very simple reason is we only had patent data in the engine, whereas Google's got patent data plus everything else. So it was mixing context.
0: Well, that brings up my next question. I mean, how do you compete with a company like Google? I mean, it would seem logically that, you know, in most technologies you have in the beginning, you have a lot of different players. Then there's massive consolidation, mm-hmm. and then there is the eBay, the Google, the Amazon. You know, so in many industries there is the one player. And I guess if you ask a lot of people in the industry right now, who is going to be that player in ten years, people would be betting on the Big G, Google, right? So, I mean, how do you compete with them?
1: Well, there's a very big difference. Google's goal is to allow people to understand. And that has a very different quality bar. Our goal is to allow our customers to publish with the minimal amount of editing possible. As an example, in uh, some of the work we've been doing with iFlix, we have more than 50% of the subtitle segments requiring zero edits, none at all. Whereas Google, if you run it through, every single sentence requires a sense of editing. That's great. It's it's a big difference (laughs) because it's built around a particular context and therefore it works better. So Google is one size fits all. And there is a space in a market for that. And that's a market that we're not trying to attract at all. Then there is another space in the market, which is highly specialized, high volume. And that's where we're trying to focus on. So recently we started building verticals. So I mentioned the media vertical that we're doing a lot of work in um, subtitles, voice recognition. So literally taking a movie and extracting the subtitle directly from the audio and then preparing it ready for somebody to proofread as a subtitle, all time stamped into the movie.
0: But I got to think that's uh, that's incredibly challenging because if you talk about movies, I mean earlier you're talking about, for example, life sciences, or we we're talking about manuals. Those are very <laughs> narrow niches, okay? But when you talk about movies, sure. I mean, I, at least the movies I watch, I mean, the conversations can be all over the place, and they involve a lot of slang, and the context is huge. Because you could listen to a movie and if you don't know the context and you're not even, if you can't even watch it, oftentimes you're like, I don't get it, right? So how does your technology handle that? So that's where, let's take two different movies
1: as an example. Let's take Friends. Okay. Okay. And if you look at the type of vocabulary in Friends, it's very simple when you look at it. It's a bit slapstick, but it's pretty simple vocabulary. Yeah. Okay. So obviously we do very well on something like that. Then you take something like The West Wing. Okay. okay, much more complex, much more difficult. Now, what happens is the customer starts on the first one, and it may not know some of the words, but they feed that edit back into the engine in a very short succession. So by the time they're up to episode uh, two or three, it's actually got the core vocabulary. It's got all the people names, all the funky terminology, and all those kinds of things, and it's doing very, very well.
0: Uh, I get it. So basically, I mean, yeah, if you do a couple episodes, that's your training, and that each episode, each right. subsequent e- episode, I guess the quality or the output uh, would be improved. Exactly. Earlier, you mentioned a blue score. What is that right. exactly? So the
1: blue score is uh, sort of the de facto metric for the industry base. You know, it's, it's a quality metric developed by IBM. It's far from perfect, but it's a good industry base. The real metric that we like our customers to use is actually quite different. The metric we like our customers to use is very, very simple, productivity. So how quickly can you fix the machine output and then compare that against translating
0: by human and going from there? That makes sense to me.
1: Let me ask you this. It gives
0: you a nice business metric. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, really what it comes down to is can I get it done faster or cheaper or both, right? Exactly. Okay. So what's going to happen in the next few years regarding technology for MT providers? Are we going to go more neural or is there something else on the horizon?
1: Well, neural's getting better all the time. So the first thing is neural's getting deeper. So when we started on neural, it's what we called shallow neural. We've now moved on to deep neural machine translation. And basically, it's just learning deeper and deeper and deeper layers of knowledge. And each time you add a layer, you need more processing power, and there's more complexity involved. But we've got that down to a very fine art now. You know, translating even at Shallow a year and a half ago was 3,000 words a minute. Today at Deep, it's 50,000 words a minute on the same hardware. So, you know, we've really optimized that. A lot of the libraries that people are using out of there are generic neural libraries, whereas the library that we're using has been built from the ground up, targeted for neural but not generic it's targeted specifically on machine translation problems and it's written in c plus so it's much much faster but where a lot of these technologies are going to go is into vertical applications so i mentioned media is one that we're doing we're also doing e-commerce so we've had a lot of experience translating uh, hundreds of millions of products for some of the largest uh, e-commerce providers in the world and turning those around And then learning e-commerce is some of the hardest things in the world to process. It's messy, it's dirty data, it's worse than user generated content on something like a hotel review website. It's really horrible, but learning how to understand that and process it. And with all of our complex tools that do things like entity extraction conversions. So for example, we can do a metric and convert or not convert it. So a 21 inch television, 21 inches from the wall, You want to leave it 21 inches as a television, but you want to convert the metric to centimeters, depending on what market you're going into. And we've got that level of capability built into the platform, which really makes a huge
0: difference. Very cool. Hey, well, just a couple more questions here. What's the pricing model or models in the MT space? And I'm not asking for Um, your specific pricing. I'm just talking about, you know, what's the how does the industry manage that? Sure. So it
1: depends on who you go to. I mean, Google charges, I think, something like $20 for a million characters. We have a model called Units, and uh, Units you can subscribe to and then spend them on anything you want, which could be training, it could be translation, and so on. And it's just a simple subscription once a month. Typically, You know, our prices are just a tiny bit above Google per word, but the resulting quality is notably higher. So, you know, you're immediately saving on the human effort of editing as opposed to something like Google. So, you know, a fraction of a cent different doesn't really matter when you're saving many cents a word difference on the human editing cost. And that's where the real expense is.
0: Great. Okay. Understandable. I guess that's it. What's up for you in the next uh, for omnisian in the next year? Any any exciting news? Any events you're going to? New product releases?
1: So we'll be doing full releases of uh, some of our media product. We'll be doing full releases of some of our e-commerce product, and we're continuing to evolve. One of the th- things I mentioned earlier was um, about large volumes of data needed. So we have a large data initiative underway. You know, we support today 550 language pairs, and that data takes a lot of effort to build. And when you're talking about tens or hundreds of millions of sentences, it takes quite some time to get that data. So we've been working with uh, Professor Philip Kuhn, our chief scientist, to build tools so that she not only gather that data, but manufacture that data and synthesize brand new sentences from existing sentences. And that makes a huge difference. So we're able to create in-domain data that is very similar to the translation memories that a customer provides. So for example, taking um, you know sentences from a customer, uh, let's say they give us 50,000 sentences and multiplying that many times over with different ways of saying the same thing to build out a domain. And that's how we're populating our neural engines is by creating all these different
0: variations. Excellent, excellent. Last question. Okay, I'm a, imagine I'm an LSP or I'm an enterprise buyer of translation, large volumes of translation, and I'm looking at using MT. And as you know, there are many different providers out there, and we talked about Google and we talked about Omnisian, Why would I come to Anissian versus anybody else? And I I think you kind of already touched on your more highly targeted and higher quality output. Is there anything else or would you like to add a little bit to that? Well,
1: This is a number of things. So first of all, we've got the largest number of language pairs in the industry, 550 language pairs. And we're constantly adding new languages. So we just added recently Swahili, Bengali and a whole lot of others. Um, So we've got a very broad spread. We have the ability to customize at a level that I don't believe anyone else can do. And in addition to that, we have a very comprehensive workflow that means you can do really complex things if needed. So, for example, just as a simple example of the complexity, we have a customer in the travel space who detects currency in real time. So if somebody said, I I had a great trip to Disneyland, but it was really expensive, it was $75. It can detect that that's $75, go out to live exchange sites like C.com convert the exchange rate in real time and present it in euro. So that's the level of control that our customers have over the whole thing. Very impressive. That makes a huge difference. If you're doing something like e-commerce, that's very complex. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Well, hey, Dion, you know, one of the things I love about doing these podcasts is, you know, it's I start off and, you know, it's seven in the morning, my time. And I talk to somebody for 30 minutes and I usually end up uh, being a little bit more educated on a particular topic. In this case, I'm not just a little bit more educated. I'm a lot more educated because I've learned a lot about uh, machine translation from you and what some of the trends are. Really appreciate your time. Any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with uh, with our audience? I think at the end of the day, technology is moving very,
1: very fast, whether it's neural or different integrations and so on. And uh, a lot of uh, not just language service providers, but enterprises should not be afraid to investigate and learn the technologies and see how they can help them gain don't stand back and watch everybody else move forward. There's a lot to learn. Yes, it does take time and effort, but the cost of not learning could be even more, more expensive.
0: Makes sense to me. Well, hey, Dion, I really appreciate your time and look forward to crossing paths with you hopefully someday soon. Thank you for joining uh, the International Buzz Podcast brought to you by Wordbeat. Have a great day. Thank you. Cheers.